Blog Talk Radio. Well, hey, kids. I almost said that it was Thursday. I don't know why it is that every time I do a show, like Wednesday or Thursday, I'm always thinking I'm a day off. Maybe it's just me. Hi, it's me, and yes, I'm actually doing a show tonight. To those of you, real quickly before we put Scott on here, I just want to alleviate some of the concerns that are out there. Obviously, as I might have addressed on social media earlier today, um, I've taken on just a huge amount of writing in a short amount of time. And yes, I know many of you are concerned about my well-being. And yes, I am concerned about it as well. And I'm doing the best that I can with what I have to work with. So I just wanted to let everybody know, yes, I'm okay, fine. As you can see here, I, I, I'm so excited about having Scott on the show because, of course, we've already had to delay him more than once. So we have Scott coming on tonight. We have Stephen Tanner coming on tomorrow night. And we have Riatha Gray coming on on Friday. Just to let everybody know as a recap as far as next week goes, I've canceled all my shows Monday through Friday of next week. And then John Murphy's show on the 19th is scheduled, I think. We'll have to double-check on that one. However, the show for the 20th would be the first one back, and that would be actress Eve Austin. So check my Facebook page. Check my show page in terms of all of the new and interesting details, I should say, because every other day we seem to have a new development. So check the show page in the chat corner for developments in terms of that. But as far as we know now, we have a show tonight, Thursday night, Friday morning at 11 o'clock, and then, of course, I'm off all next week. So without further ado, let's get Scott online and start talking. <sighs> Scott Silverman. Cindy, how are Hello? you? Hello, okay, how are you? Me. I didn't know. <laughs> I was afraid there was no one there for a minute. I'm like, okay. I've been rambling for the last five minutes trying to talk to everyone. So, hi. I apologize that I have had to cancel twice before you got on the show. I really do apologize. This is not my long suit. Short suit? Long suit? I'm not quite sure which one it is. Hmm. Well, as long as you're wearing a suit, I'm happy. <laughs> At the moment, I'm wearing a skirt and a shirt, actually, as a matter of fact. I just got done with a very long day of writing, ran off to have dinner real quick, and then came back home specifically because I want to spend this time with you. So first off, thank you very much for taking the time because I know it's kind of inconvenient and it's 6 o'clock your time, and I'm I'm hoping that I'm not interfering too much, not too much. Not at yeah. all. And by the way, just to correct you, you only canceled once and rescheduled the second time, so I'm way, oh, I'm way, uh, way okay with that. That oh, kind of stuff happens okay. all the time. Yeah, well, see, I always end up feeling badly because I'm like, I didn't know this project was going to come up, and it came up, and I feel bad, and I'm like, I, I don't like to have to reschedule people, but it is an, a necessary evil, so to speak, in this industry, so I appreciate that. And there's so much to talk about with you. You're, folks. All I can say is this. He's a big deal. I got a chance to go to to those that follow me. I was in San Diego, of course, for the Horror Film Festival, and uh, Scott was gracious enough to actually come and meet me, and I got to see him in person and meet him well before he actually came out of my show. And I have to say three things about him. He is that gentlemanly. He is that generous with his time and attention, and he is that lovely. And I'm not just saying that. He legitimately is all free, without a doubt. I mean, you are so gracious and wonderful with your time and very charming and very sweet. You're you're just you're lovely. I I don't you're, know what else to say besides you're lovely. No, if you will, where we actually met. <laughs> <laughs> He's gonna make me say it. Damn it. Think, well, okay. Saying, so it's like um, this. Um, I took a. I got on a plane and I got off. Um, uh, I got off at LAX, and then um, I went and I grabbed a Greyhound bus because I thought, oh, okay, cool. It's only a couple hours between LA and San Diego, so I'll just take the bus. And um, so Scott was gracious enough to offer to come and pick me up, and um, 
Well, the great nine hours later, a little scary. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> but I made it though. I legitimately made it, and I was safe. And the people were nice, and I made friends on the bus like any good person would. Hey, sometimes you know when you're not from California, you have to do what you have to do. You know, and I'm not from California, so I had to acclimate. It was all good. I didn't make it wait too terribly long, and I was an awful company. It's you know, I think it worked out well. So that's how. No, okay, I think folks, many, many of the passengers actually have reached out to me and go, "When is Cindy coming back to San Diego? We had such a great time on the Greyhound." Yeah. And then the most I got asked more than anything else is, "Why would she take a Greyhound bus from Los Angeles to San Diego?" And I said, "Well, obviously she's very adventurous, and clearly yes. she loves you know driving around the freeways of Southern California. <laughs> Why else well, would I'm one do that?" I'm not from your area, so, you know, you have to kind of acclimate. And you know what? It was cheap transportation. I didn't want to have a friend have to drive me like two and a half, three hours or whatever. You know, next time when I come back, I'll be in L.A., so it'll be a little bit easier. I don't have to make the transport from one place to another. So I'm like, okay. But we don't want to talk about me. We want to talk about you. Hello? I'm not Yeah, and by the way, here. with that wait time that I had because of your delays, next time it would be easier for me with enough lead time. I'll just drive to L.A., pick you up, and bring you to San Diego, and we can spend more quality time together. No, honestly, so and I do admit that that, yeah, that was kind of a bummer, actually. It was kind of like go from the Greyhound station legitimately to the hotel, and, and there wasn't a lot of quality time. So I will admit that my next trip definitely has to have more of a personal touch to it where there's more time, without a doubt. Well, yeah, you know, definitely. and it's always nice to drive through the heart of uh, your homeless uh, po- major population in a metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. The sun is, is setting to, to kind of get reacclimated to what real life's all about. So it was, it was a great adventure. I think I've right. told the story maybe about 75 times since I met you. And it's uh, most people, the big question, why Greyhound? I said, well, I think her family has stock in it or something. She just got a really good deal and wanted to jump on a Greyhound. <laughs> oh, so my anyway, God. I'm, he's giving me so much crap. Listen to this. He well, really I've, is I've, a nice guy, folks. Really. The last really I was at a Greyhound uh, bus stop. Probably was was doing some sort of a drug deal back in 1982. I mean, how long it's been since I've been at a Greyhound bus stop. So, oh my God, was, and I made you go there. I'm so sorry. Oh no, no, it was great. It was reflecting on my own sobriety and talking about, and you know, sharing the story with my wife. And you know, it's just it's a great story. I think because you know what, sure. it's true Americana. Getting on a bus and, and moving. And, and it's interesting. Years ago, my mom took us to um, Utah. And we actually were on a bus for a week, moving around some of the hot spots. And, and the average age on the bus, I think I was 10 or 11, the average age was in the late 60s and 70s. And it was a real adventure. And that's, uh, you know, it was a great way to see, uh, you know, our country is through the window of, uh, you know, a bus or even a train. Anyway, so back Same. to you. So what's on your mind? How Adventure's can I? I'd be a resource to you and, and your listeners. And- oh, my God. Listen to, listen to this. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm going to talk a little bit about you because there's, there is much about Scott H. Silverman that most people don't know. Obviously, of course, when someone writes a book, you identify with the fact that they're an author. And, and for instance, we'll talk about the book that Scott has done. But Scott has done numerous things, which I call heart-heavy work. And sometimes in life, heart ha- doing heart-heavy work is probably some of the best and most distinctive and most honorable work that we'll ever do. Um, and you're one of my favorite kind of people to come on the show because um, I interview all types from all different walks of life, all different industry people and such. But you do things that matter. You do things that have meaning. That's significant. It's huge. It's good for the soul. It's good for you as a person. It's good for the rest of us. So I'm going to delve into a bunch of different things. And so we'll talk about you from a personal standpoint, and we'll talk about you from a professional standpoint. But the one thing I want to start with, um, which I thought was really neat, I when I was researching you, I saw that you had made this notation saying, 
my wife, Michelle, helped save my life. And I want you to talk about that. I, I, I am huge on the concept of someone's significant other, partner, or otherwise being fundamental in them finding themselves and their journey to finding themselves in a better place. So talk to us a little bit about your wife. I understand that she's in real estate, that much I know about her. Unfortunately, I wish I knew more. So talk a little bit about her and, and the journey in terms of what, is, what she has done that has been so fundamental in helping you find yourself. Well, you know, I, I've got to go back to, to you know, our history. Interestingly enough, she was a very old family friend. I met her when she was 12. We're four years apart. And Aww. she was my little, my little sister's best friend, so I knew her at a very young age, and we we never really talked to each other much because you know she was my younger sister's friend and I was the older brother, and we you know we kind of grew up together, knowing each other as a family friend. So there was a level of uh, familiarity that really happened, which most people don't get when they get to know somebody, because especially from mm-hmm. that perspective. And we, you know, fast forwarding, we we uh, ended up getting married, and it was uh, my my one of my worst times of my life as far as my substance abuse and alcoholism goes. And I only mention that because I know at some point we're going to discuss that part of my life and of that course. journey. And she spent the the next two years with me, uh, my worst you know time of hitting my bottom, and to the point where I, at the end of that two year stint, I was prepared to take my own life. And, and I'm sure you haven't had a chance to read the book yet. I know how busy you are, but in there I talk about how that happened and how she was uh, working with me um, more as a support mechanism to say, look, when you're ready and you want help, I'm going to be here for you and I'll be holding your hand the whole way. And I didn't really know what that meant until I had a chance to reflect. So I went through that sure. episode in my life and I got sober. And through all that, she was at family week. She held my hand and never judged me and in many ways probably spent a lot of her time being more codependent than she needed to. But through that process, I knew I had a lifeline. I didn't know it at the time. You know, She was the one that was making me go home early. And I remember Sunday mornings having to, mm-hmm. she'd bring a list to me and she says, you need to call the following people and apologize for what happened last night. I'm like, what are you talking about? She says, well, you know, and I'd been a blackout drinker, so I had no idea. So I'd call these people up sure. and apologize. They would tell me that, you know, Scott, I tell you, if it wasn't for your wife, I don't know how you would have gotten home last night. And, of course, I don't even remember getting home. So that's kind of when the, the, the pattern or the trajectory of our relationship really grew in a way that I was kind of semi-conscious to. And, you know, we've been together now just 34 years, and, and I've been sober 32. So, right. you know, I have two wonderful daughters. One's uh, 25, Gracie, and the other one's Jessica. She's right. 30. and. They they never saw me loaded, which is always, you know, an unusual circumstance <laughs> for most alcoholics. Right. You know, so sure. it's been a special opportunity for me. And as a family, we've we've always been close, uh, and a lot of it because of my experience of wanting to take my own life and then spending, you know, the last well, 32 plus years working with others to be of service and to help. So she's been with me on the whole journey, and when I talk about saving my life, I mean, she literally, I called, she was the one I called the day I was preparing to jump off a ledge at a window, and she said, fly home tonight. I was in New York on business, and things ready to go and prepared for everything that needs to take place. And I didn't know what that meant, mm-hmm. but I trusted she would do everything she needed to do to make it happen. So. So that's kind of the, the, the short version of a long journey, um, you know, and we're still best friends, which is awesome and wonderful, and we still talk about how we can uh, not only support our children, 
but other families' children as well. And, and we just actually did an interview on television for the first time ever. I saw. The news and talking about the, the drug addict, alcoholic, and what it was like to be married to one. And it was an interesting show segment, and she got some really good uh, feedback, and, and I think the station loved it as well, because rarely do we hear from the family until we see them at a grave site, and people are wondering, well, gee, what happened to Johnny? He was only, you know, 47 years old. And then they find out, and it's always a sad story. So we like to be, a, hopefully, a good example of how it works and what it takes to work at it to help it work. And, folks, coincidentally, I watched that interview, and I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that I saw his wife. And she's not unattractive either. She's really pretty, too. So she's inspiring, and she's intelligent, and she's really pretty, too. I'm just going to say that. And I'm not biased. I can legitimately say that she's just absolutely adorable, as are your children, by the way, because I've creeped on your page and I've seen your daughters. Oh, my God. Breathtaking. Doesn't that scare you? I mean, like my daughter, I mean, and I'm not going to lie, I think she's gorgeous. And I'm like, oh, my God, somebody's going to come along and she's beautiful. And I'm thinking, does that ever make you nervous as dad? Because you're like, you know, we're all a little overprotective of our children, right? Or is it just? Oh, you know, I I was one of those parents. I was what was sometimes defined as a drive-by parent, you know, where my kids, would, when they would go out at night, they would wonder, I wonder if dad's going to drive by tonight. I said, well, you know, this way, just try to visualize for your own personal safety that I'm very close by and you will never see me. You'll never know. There. For example, you know, I was one of those parents. I, I really, I grew up in a family where no was said a lot, like a lot of us do, where no, you can't do that. <clears throat> no, you can't sure. hang out with that and no, you shouldn't be with that one. No, you shouldn't go to that school. No, you're not tall enough to play that sport. And I think, you know, it shows that seven out of ten of us that here no, just we take it and we run with it. Sure. So what I did with my kids was I would just simply say um, when they brought certain things up, you know, I would try to find workarounds. So, for example, one night I remember a story. They, they were getting ready to go to a movie, and they uh, were talking about these kids they went with uh, that had gotten in some trouble at school and, they're all going to get together and go to the movie. And I, and I said, um, is that okay? And I said, well, you know, let me ask a question. Isn't that the individual, that group that you were talking about just a couple of weeks ago that were getting in trouble at school? And, you know, are they the best ones to go to the movies with? And they go, well, you know, we just, we want to hang out with the cool kids. You know, peer pressure is always a big sure. issue with, with children, young people growing up. So I of said, course. you know what, let me do this. Let me, I want to go to the movies with you. And they're like, What? No, no, I'll drive and I'll, you know, I'll buy the popcorn and I'll pay for the movies and I'll just I'll sit in the back. You won't even know I'm there. So they kind of oh reconnoitered, God. decided they're not going to move. I would try to do some strategic, out of the box thinking when it came to uh, trying to intervene on on situations that you know. And when our kids yep. got in trouble, and everybody does, we had a policy. We call it a policy. I grew up in a family business, so we never had rules. We had policies and procedures. So look. Oh no, I get it. You make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. We know you're going to make mistakes. We don't want you to make mistakes, but you know that we're going to. And when they happen, we just want to be a resource for you. So, you know, we don't need to know what you're doing, and we don't want details. But if something happens, no matter what time of the day it is, call us. And, you know, each one of them did, and each time it happened for each one of them, it was a, it was a pretty serious situation, nothing illegal. But, you know, when we got sick once, and we basically uh, were able to sit down and talk about what we do next. Options and opportunities. You know what's that thing? Fail sure. frequently, you can succeed sooner. So we tried to have that open dialogue in our family. We tried to find ways to be uh, be a good example, and not only that, more importantly, be a good support and a good resource right. for our kids. 
So Oh, sure. Definitely. And I see it's worked out very well. I mean, you can see, and folks, just to, I can attest to this, of course, because not all of you are friends with him on social media or otherwise, but if you take a peek, and I've noticed some of the pictures and some of the comments and some of the things that are said from your family to you, and you can see that there's a sense of adoration and admiration that they carry for you, that you have clearly earned. I mean, it's not something that's fabricated. So I find that very refreshing. That means that you're definitely taking steps in the right direction, which is so refreshing. I mean, it's it's nice to see that you can have bumps in the road and end up ultimately becoming someone's beacon of hope, and especially when it's your children. I think that that's so, well, this is about one of 18,000 reasons why I like the man on the other end of the phone, but you're going to learn why as we go along here. Um, one of the things that I didn't know about until recently, which you have to talk about, which is, oh, my God, Scott Silverman does yard art. Talk to me about the yard art. What's up with that? When did this happen? How did this happen? Well, you know, it's an interesting story, um, you know, sometimes referred to as garden art or yard art. It's, I'm, a, I'm a metal artist, which means I work with an oxygen acetylene torch at 2,700 degrees at the tip, and I, and I make things. Uh, out of copper and brass and steel, and I, you know, I call it yard art because they're because they're like abstracts where, you know, you put them. In, I make them with the idea they're going to go outdoors, and when they rust and turn colors, they're going to be more exciting than when they were, were actually new. So going way back to the day uh, when I was uh, an unlicensed pharmacist, I used to sell a product called methamphetamine, which right now oh. is at an all-time. All-time high in our, in our community in San Diego because it's becoming a quick replacement for people who can't afford opiates, which is really scary, or can't get access to heroin. And I was a big consumer of that product, and I used to, you know, stimulants keep you up at night. And I remember one day deciding I love working with my hands, always have. I got a little mini torch for my bedroom when I was sharing an apartment with a guy, and I would do metal projects at night and create little, you know, candle holders and little votives and some fun metal mobiles and things of that nature, just like coffee cans and little pieces of steel. And I did that for mm-hmm. like four or five years, really loved it, put it away. And then uh, about 10 years ago, I, you know, was going through a transition in my career, and I really thought about it, and I went and bought a new tank and a tip and started making yard art, and it was just very, very uh, exciting for me, and it helped me with a balance. And even familiar with mindfulness, for me, it was that act of mindfulness and taking little sheets of copper and cutting them into hearts, and then melting the, you know, the steel around it and making flowers and different designs and little bicycles. And I'd go online and you know look at YouTube and find different ways to make different things, and um, started making different flowers and uh, different patterns and different shapes and. Uh, I just really, really loved it, and it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, and it's something I've unfortunately, in the last two years since I started my new business, I haven't really had time to do it. But I, you know, I have all my findings, and everything's in the garage. And I, you know, when I when I sit out there and ponder, I want to get back into it. I'm hoping by by uh, early January things should be calming down a little bit, and I hope to pick up the uh, the torch again because I find it very, very relaxing and it's fun. And it's, and I do it, you know. I remember I got invited to the farmers market one morning. A friend of mine saw that on Facebook. Said, "Why don't you bring your art down?" And I actually did. It was fun. I sold a few hundred dollars worth of my art pieces, and uh, oh, nice. I uh, was excited to watch people's reaction to it. So it's it's fun to do, and it's fun to watch. And but I didn't really want to be in the business of selling my art, so I just kind of did it and gave it away as okay. gifts. And people, and gotcha. hopefully, they. Uh, and the nice thing about metal is it has a long life, and you can put it outside right. and, and watch it uh, change color over the years. 
Well, that's why I was wondering about this, because obviously you have such a full life in terms of all the other obligations and things you have going on. So I was curious about if this is just something that you did as a hobby or if it was something that you were actually going to, you know, that was going to take on more of a form in your life. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to go off and sell this. We're going to do fairs, markets, et cetera. Because I'm like, I totally could see you doing something like that, like having place like art all over the place. That would be so cool, wouldn't it? Maybe I have oh, yeah, and I, I actually do have a bunch in the house and a couple boxes full of stuff and a bunch of flowers. And the nice thing about the metal flower that I, what I found was I started getting into um, using um, graffiti paint. Graffiti paint is made a special way, and it comes out of the can a special way, and they have different nozzles. So I started making flowers out of steel, and then I would seal them with paint the actual bud itself and I could make colors and patterns and you know somebody wanted red red flowers I'd make red flowers and I'd go get the metal findings and put them weld the rod together and, and make all kinds of fun different colors so they become bouquets of metal flowers for the garden and uh, so there's all you could do but you're right I I almost I almost took it to a business level I had a friend who worked for a big organization mm-hmm. and Wanted, they said, could you make 10,000 flowers? And I said, well, that, that would take me a little while to do something like that. So I, oh, and I didn't want it to make a business. I wanted it to just be something I do and I create. Because, you know, over the years, I love working with wood. Uh, I used to be a candle maker as well back in the day. So I've experimented oh with gosh. different people. I love doing things like that. So, uh, you know, just uh, working with my hands is something I've always enjoyed, and I find it very melodic and very relaxing. Oh, I imagine. And plus, too, obviously, of course, it's it's work, for, but from an artistic standpoint. I don't think people sometimes realize that you can do things that are busy work, but it's busy brain work, so to speak. That's what I call it when I do my writing, the things that I love. Sometimes there's a work part of it, and then sometimes there's an artistic part of it. And I think it's really cool that you, you have this side venture of yours, so to speak, and I'm hoping that you do something more with that. that that's It sounds really neat, and I was just looking at you on social media and seeing all these things, and I thought, yeah, this would be really cool to walk into a store and say, hey, there's Scott stuff sitting there. Like I said, I have delusions yeah. of grandeur for everyone, so I'm just throwing that out there. Oh, no, and I um, – grandiosity and terminal uniqueness as well. So I actually, I had to put it in a few stores, you know, but I just didn't really push it and market it because I felt if I did, I'd right. I'd get my, my compulsive obsessive uh, behavioral uh, <laughs> issue would kick in. And because uh, I remember early on, and, and it, when you read the book, you'll hear this, my first year of sobriety, I focused really hard on my sobriety. My second year, I got into kite right. flying. And, you oh know, my gosh. Kite flying? What do you mean kite flying? Well, stunt kites. Back in, you know, in the 80s, um, it was just a sport that was just starting. It was ripstop nylon. It was a Kevlar string. And when I say kite flying, it was, you know, you had two different uh, lines and you had handles and you actually did stunt flight, you know, kite flying where you actually flew patterns and S patterns and uh, O patterns and V patterns and M patterns, and you carve out different letters and kind of move your kite through the sky. The lines were usually 75 to 100 feet long, and you okay. know it became a very big comp- competitive uh, sport. And actually, it's done around the world wherever there's wind. Big big sport in Hawaii because the wind's always hmm. blowing hard. And uh, it was you know you see people now are actually you know water skiing with their kites. I think it's called paraskiing, and that's where oh that kind of from was from uh, kite flying. They took the idea, made a bigger foil, you know, and you see people doing it um, parasailing right now as well. They have a big mm-hmm. uh, paraport here in San Diego where they fly off of scripts, and, you know, it's almost like having like this big kite tied to a harness, and you just you fly until uh, you eventually land in a nice soft beach. Oh, my so gosh, was, that sounds so cool. That yeah, does. That sounds amazing. My point to the story was my – Ninth month into it, I was thinking about opening up a kite store and doing some manufacturing, and you know everyone uh-huh. around me and 
Harvey said, why can't you just be a regular person like us and just enjoy kite flying? <laughs> that was a good lesson learned. But, you know, all those things over the years, from a therapeutic perspective and a balanced perspective and, you know, mm-hmm. from a, a well-being perspective, those were great tools. I didn't really choose them for that, but it turned out over time doing things like right. that, you know, like you talk about writing or blogging or, you know, writing right. poetry or or karaoke sing. people that do things like that in their life it's a way to express yourself you know and I love that mm-hmm. uh, the of his pressure bus pipes and if you don't do things like that play guitar piano sing whatever you do walk exercise you know spend time um, going on hikes you or skiing whatever it might be riding a bike I think what happens is you 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 can kind of you become toxic and you don't express yourself in a way and that kind of thing it helps uh, doesn't help in t- when you internalize it because then what happens is it, co- it manifests itself in a negative way. Oh, definitely. I I totally get what you're saying. I do. I want to um, switch gears a little bit because, like I said, we're going to bounce around a little bit to all sorts of different things that you've done before. Um, I want to touch on this before because one of the things that I had heard from you directly when I first – actually, the day that I met you was we had spoken a, a bit about um, your passion in terms of being able to assist in ending homelessness. So I want you to talk to my listening audience a little bit about two different things. First of all, why is this subject matter so important to you? That's the first thing is why does this touch you in such a way where you feel moved to want to help with this? And then second of all, talk about your journey a little bit, some of the things that you've done and that you're proud of or the accolades that you've achieved in terms of helping people get housing and trying to end this plight. Because let me tell you, oh, my gosh, my future home of New York City is just – plump full of homelessness and it just saddens the soul to the 19th degree. I mean, it's 19 degrees where we are right now. And I can only imagine what it's like to not have a roof over my head and nowhere to sleep at night. So if you would, please talk a little bit about both of those, if you would. Well, you know, I, I, through my house of worship, you know, every year the announcement would come, you know, at the, the Jewish holidays, people would talk about, you know, raising resources for different uh, you know, venues in the community, and homelessness was a, uh, a topic for our, our congregation. In one year, you know, I was just sitting at services during the high holidays, and, you know, the person came up, made an announcement, look, if you've never had a chance to come down to the shelter on Sunday and feed the homeless, we want every family to come one weekend, just experience it. So, you know, we talked about it as a family, and it was like we had to get up at 5.30, so I said, look, I'll go. Uh, represent and how it goes. So I went down and I did it, and you know it was interesting. We our, our temple did Sunday because everybody else prayed on Sunday, so it was our day as a group to represent and feed. You know, at one point it got up to twelve hundred people. And this is this is back in the eighties uh, for a city that's as supposedly as sophisticated as we are in San Diego, and our homeless problem is up almost twenty five percent from three years ago. And, you know, we, we throw billions of dollars at it, and it continues to get worse. So it, I, I stay engaged indirectly, but I, I've been out of the nonprofit world. We'll talk about that in a minute in, uh, for six sure. years. But you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a piece of my heart that I believe that we're doing things that we, we could be doing differently and really making things better. But for some reason, it seems like we're not. So I went down, okay. volunteered. Fell in love with the experience, and I came back the next week and the next week. And two months into my, you know, experience, the head of volunteers came up and said, "You know, Scott, this is really unusual, but most people don't stay here and hang out and do this for more than a weekend. Why are you back?" And more importantly, she said, "How is it you know?" This was interesting, Cindy. How is it you know half the people were serving? <laughs> 
And I said, well, half of them I know from the rooms of recovery, and the other portion of them I know from the streets, if you will, because I was an active, as I said earlier, an unlicensed pharmacist. My daughter hates when I say that, by the way, but I said, most people don't even know what it means, honey. So I knew them, or I knew the lifestyle that they had chosen because I had been a big part of it. Luckily for me, I had a, a job, but, you know, at some point when I got into treatment, it was decision was made by the leadership team that I, I leave the family business, and I was on disability for a year, and I went through the state vocational rehab to get reevaluated, and I literally, you know, I wasn't homeless, but I was very close to it. I was jobless and out of work and wasn't generating an income other than my disability. So, so I, I said, I just love doing this, and I want to be of service. So they said, great, you know, do you want to get elevated from being, you know, going from folding the napkins and the the, the the plastic spoons and forks to maybe, you know, serving food. So I did. So nine months into my stint, I was approached again, and someone said, you know, do you want to take on more responsibility? I said, no, I'm happy doing this. And then all of a sudden, this guy comes up to me uh, and says, you know, somebody says you can help me get a job. And I said, who told you that? Well, they did. They said that, you know, you've been in business and you know how to do this. And I said, well, let's sit and talk about it. So we talked about it. He goes, nobody seems to want to hire me. So we went and took a little trip to the restroom. And we stood in front of the mirror. Let's call this guy Bob. I said, Bob, take a look in the mirror. What do you see? You see, I see a homeless guy. I said, okay, but let's let's look a little more at the detail. Take a look at your facial hair. Take a look at the way your hair is. Take a look at the way your shirt's sitting on your shoulders. I said, would you ever hire you? He says, what do you mean? I said, take a look real hard. Would you ever hire someone who looked the way you do? He goes, what am I supposed to do? I'm homeless. I go, really? Let's talk about it. So we sat down for another hour, and I gave him some suggestions. I said, there's a barber college over here at 10th and, you know, B Street. There's a place you can go to get clothes. I'll make a phone call for you and get you, you know, 50 bucks worth of free clothes, and then I right. want to see you in the next week or two. So Bob comes back in a couple weeks, had no idea who he was. He shaved, got his hair cut, and he had a new shirt on. Oh, my gosh. I said, okay. I said, Bob, let's go back to the same restroom we were at two weeks ago over here at the, you know, at the Shelter, one of the big ones in mm-hmm. San Diego, near the Greyhound bus stop, just so you know, Cindy. So that area is very familiar to me. <laughs> We're, we're looking in the mirror. I said, what do you see, Bob? He says, well, I see a well-groomed individual who's really motivated to go get a job, but I don't know how. I said, well, we'll talk about it. So we sat down. We talked about the resume. We talked about a cover letter. We talked about what to do in the interview, how to make a great first impression, how you never get a second chance to make one, what to do first, how to do it, how to smile, and really prepare yourself. Right. So. I don't see Bob for a couple months, and all of a sudden this guy comes up to me. I didn't recognize him. He says, hey, Scott, you remember me? I said, forgive me, I don't. He goes, it's me, Bob. I said, oh, my God, Bob. And he has this really nice uniform on. You know, He's working at McDonald's. And he, he's been three months into his job. He's already a manager in training. Aww. Bob, he goes, what can I do to pay you back, Scott? I said, here's what I'd like you to do, because now what I'm doing is I'm serving breakfast. I'm into my 12th or 13th month now. I said, at the end of breakfast, I want you to come with me. And and now what's happened is I'm like this Pied Piper. I got 30 to 40 men and women sitting in a circle, and we're talking about the same thing I talked to Bob about. I said, but Bob, do me a favor. Today, 
I want you to tell your story. So we're out there. It was 50 people showed up that day. I remember, I'll never forget it. And we have an hour, and Bob talked for 40 minutes about his experience and the mirror and the reflection and the haircut and the shaving and the grooming and then going for the job interview. And he said, anybody here who's willing to do what I did, when you're done with that part of the journey, you come see me at the downtown McDonald's. I will get you an interview. So the head of volunteers hears about this two months later and says, Scott, I understand you're getting our customers. She called them customers, our customers' opportunities for workforce. Why don't you go meet you know, the downtown group and make a presentation and see how you can be a resource? So I went. It took me two months to get a meeting. I went in, told the story about Bob. I said, I really want to help the nonprofits help their sure. clients get jobs. And they go, well, wait a minute. If you get our clients' jobs, what will we do? And I'm like, what? Well, Scott, we're social workers. We do paperwork. We help them get food stamps and bus passes. I go, but mm-hmm. have you talked to any of the clients? I said, I've met with most of them the last year and a half or so. They don't want you to help with paperwork. They want you to help them get a job and show mm-hmm. them how to get a job and where to go and what to say. They go, well, we're not about to do that, and we're not going to support you if you want to do it. So I said, really? Are you serious? They go, look, our job is to help them get access to housing and mental health treatment and substance abuse. They go, they're out there loaded every week, and they're depressed about homeless. So I don't know what you're doing, but it doesn't seem to be working. Right. So I came home that night. I had the worst case of the efforts I've ever had in my adult life. And I told my wife, I said, look, I've heard about this nonprofit stuff. I want to open a nonprofit. She says, you have no idea what you're talking about. I said, I know. I've got nowhere to go but up. Next day, go to the library, open a book on how to start a nonprofit. And I went to work. And within six months, I had a nonprofit. I had an IRS determination. I got it on a fast track. And I just found a place where I could kind of hang my hat downtown. And right. I started working with people at group levels and started learning how to raise money, how to build a board of directors, what it took to you know run and create a mission and vision statement. So I started from absolutely zero, and I created an organization called Second Chance. And right. it took me three years to get going, and I finally got my first grant. And with that grant, I hired someone to get more grants, and within five years, we had a $125,000 a year budget. In year six, it got even bigger. And by year eight, I had seen this show on TV about a group in Harlem who created a job readiness program called Strive, S-T-R-I-V-E. I flew back right. to New York three months later, made an appointment, wanted to meet with them. They go, y- you do know you're at 112th and Lex, right? And I said, Yeah. You know, your people generally don't come down here. They don't feel safe. I said, well, okay, I didn't know that. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But I said, I want to talk to you about replicating your program in San Diego. And they laughed. Anyway, a year later, I did. And we were the first national affiliate of the Strive program out in San Diego. Mm-hmm. And now we had the structured curriculum. And all of a sudden, instead of serving five people a month, now I'm serving 50. And then it grew. Aww. By the time I left there uh, six years ago, the agency was 18 years old. Had a three and a half million dollar operating budget was was helping thousands of people every year, and I did that. Learned to love it. My focus was on people coming out of jail and prison, ex offenders, and the idea was to demonstrate that people who were given an opportunity for with help and hope 
a, a home, a, you know, roof over their head, a home to live, even if it was, you know, shared housing, an opportunity right. to get access to job readiness training, could go get a job, especially in a place like San Diego. We have a lot of hospitality, a lot of tourists. And, and the, right. the idea was nobody wants to flip burgers, but, you know, every major food right. chain in the country has training programs. So I went and met the trainers, right. the, the directors. And they and I said they said you can give us a steady flow of motivated, attitude adjusted people who really want to go to work. And I go absolutely, and that's what I did. So I found my reference. I fed them talented, graduated, motivated people. Most had criminal histories, but that's not what they said when they first went to the interview. Had the best right. attitude anybody in the interview process, and they started getting jobs. But what was more important to me is they kept the jobs. So we started to reduce recidivism, meaning people going back to jail and prison by 75%. So now I had a model. We had it studied by three different universities. And the concept right. works. And then the program was a uh, four-week training with a two-year follow-up. And science says if you can help support someone through a trajectory of that period of time, you can affect systemic change. And we did it. The model's there. And that's the model I think we need to apply to homelessness if you will, to create the incentives and opportunities for people to change. You can't just do it with 60 days in a tent. And a tent's temporary. Right. When you're in a tent or a shelter, a short-term shelter, you're just bombarded by the same problem you've had on the street. So there, is, there are ways to change things, and, and things like that were treatable. And we got more housing, and at one point we had 175 beds, and we were serving thousands over the year. Okay. So it, it was it's scalable, it's possible, you can monetize it, and at the end of the day, it works. And just so you know, folks, just a quote here. He has assisted in over 24,000 people in the San Diego area becoming employed. 24,000. That's 24,000 lives. That's just breathtaking to me. I mean, I, I 24,000 people. That's just, that's why I brought that up. I mean, it just, it, it amazes me to touch that many lives to be able to, and what people I think don't realize sometimes is sometimes all it takes is that individual getting that first job again or getting up in the morning and having a purpose, having somewhere to go, having something to do, feeling like they matter. People forget the significance to that. I think they don't realize that that matters. That's important. Feeling like you matter, feeling like you have purpose, feeling like you're contributing. That's something that's important. The homelessness uh, you know, thing, and I guess the other thing I want to address with this, and you of all people would be perfect to talk about this. Oftentimes, I, what I notice is people tend to feel better about themselves by not by acknowledging that they don't notice. They notice, but they don't notice. Does that make sense? Like if the homeless don't have a face, it's not an issue because we don't recognize that. I think people are very quick to ignore the fact that it's such a big issue. So what I want to ask you is, and whether it's San Diego, Wisconsin, or wherever we're talking about, what can we as listeners, individuals that aren't necessarily nonprofit um, founders or people that work with organizations, what can we as simple citizens do to make a difference in the lives of the homelessness to decrease that number, to make people matter more, to make them have an actual face? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. It's a it's a big question. That, unfortunately, yep. there isn't an answer. But but a couple of things that 
I was I would respond to that with is number one, know that you're you're you know there was a, actually there was a point in time there was a group out of I think Washington D.C. was it was called the they had a ten year plan to end homelessness. I remember once going okay. to speak to a local Rotary Club and it was like it was like the fourteenth year of the ten year plan, and I called the executive director in D.C. I said, look, I'm going to be speaking to a group of Rotarians next week. Can you give me any updates of what's going on with the ten year plan? Do you have any insights mm-hmm. or anything, innovations or things that are working? And they said, nope, things haven't changed a bit. I said, so what are you going to do with the 10-year plan now that we're in the 14th year? And well, Scott, we right. may have to extend another 10 years. So what I would say, and that was a time when that, when that organization was created where homelessness was, was becoming part of the landscape, to your point. You know, you walk down any metropolitan, <clears throat> any metropolitan city anywhere in our country, and you see people, you know, uh, where there might have been one or two or three or four, and now there's three or four hundred, maybe even thousands in some marketplaces. And I think we have to mm-hmm. understand that, first of all, this is a human being, okay? And right. second of all, this is a human being who's got a family somewhere because they didn't just come from a spaceship and landed, you know, in Skid Row in Los Angeles and said, okay, right. your job is to be homeless the rest of your life. There are things right. that create create the or contribute to homelessness, whether it be a law, job, job loss, mental health issues, a veteran who comes back with suffering from mental health issues, uh, individuals who you know have made some slip up in their life and they've just had a difficult time. But I think you know it's it's not a disease, if you will, and it's not something people choose to do. So I think if we start to think about it differently, we might look at it differently. And if we look at it differently, we'll think about it differently. And if we do that, we might be willing to maybe, you know, and I'm not suggesting you ever go up to a homeless person and give them money because that money is usually used for substance abuse or drinking. But you know, maybe sure. support organizations because now, for example, in San Diego, which is a tourist city, I mean, you saw it when we left, you know, when I picked you up. I mean, it's our downtown you know, metropolitan San Diego, and San Diego is called America's one of America's finest cities. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's a there's a tent city now. You know, where it covers five or six square blocks, linear blocks, where tents are right, popped up. Right. And and it's like you know, and I was joking with a colleague of mine the other day. I was down in Little Italy, which is an area that's become overwhelmed, and it impacts mm-hmm. tourism. It hurts business, and so now there's this animosity with business people and residents. Well, clearly, look, when you have to leave your home, and you have to step out to your, you know, maybe your secure garage. But when you drive out of that, and you have to be careful not to drive over somebody sleeping in a tent. And if you walk right. around your neighborhood taking your children out or your dog or you go for a walk and you're stepping in all the things that are left behind by people that don't have a way to dispose of them, let alone defecating and urinating on the street, it's horrible. So everyone gets impacted. So not taking a look at it and not investing some time or talent or even treasury and help affecting change really means in some ways you're you're just either ignoring it, as you said, or you're contributing to it. So Correct. There are things we can do, and there are models around the country and in the world that have, have been utilized, and obviously housing is a critical part of it. Self-empowerment is important. Harm reduction is important. Substance abuse treatment. And in our city, you know, up to 30% of our homeless are veterans. I mean, that's just appalling. How is that yes, possible? Yes, it is. You know, I agree. How is it possible? We're a military city. And we're a city, you know, that relies on a huge amount of resources from the military, whether it be families living here, working here, supporting the military. It shouldn't even be. Someone should never have to serve 
a country like ours come back from a war or come back from their effort and then not have the resources they need to be self-sufficient. So if you were to able to just do with the veterans, that's a third of the homelessness in our community, if you will. Then another third are probably able-bodied, need resources, not as much as others. And then the other third, right. clearly co-occurring mental health issues, they may need more support. But if you could take 60% of the homeless and put them on a trajectory in the next two to three years with the right resources, we could put a huge dent in homelessness. We really could. Sure. Oh, no, I agree with you, definitely. And it, and it is. It's, and, of course, I know, obviously, we're in the time of the year now with Christmas time coming. And, of course, obviously, most oftentimes people are looking inside of themselves and saying, what can we do to make a difference? But homelessness is one of those things where it's it's a year-round heart worry. You know, obviously, people are homeless all year-round. People have needs all year-round and such. So it's something that we need to be cognizant of 24-7 all year round as far as that goes. And, and, and I'm huge on that. In fact, I work with a, um, there's a homelessness, homeless shelter, I should say, in Rochester, New York that I donate. I brought like 20 bags of stuff to, and I'm like, Sister Greg is a wonderful human being, but unfortunately New York City is only one of, you know, 49 other states that have homeless issues that we need to address. And I could go on and on about that, but but thank you for addressing that. I think that that's, it, it, it distresses me so much that I think people, don't recognize that even the homeless have a face. They they tend to forget that because their home is the street, so therefore they're not recognizable. And unfortunately, they're very, very, very important and vital. And and I just wish we didn't have the slew of issues that we did in terms of that. Um, I discovered something about you that I want you to talk about. You were actually a board member of the Honorary Deputy Sheriff's Association. Now, that struck me as unusual. I wouldn't have pegged you for something like that. Forgive me. <laughs> but I was like, I'm curious to understand how we got involved with something like that, because that just didn't seem to be your thing. Forgive me. I'm like, from the little that I knew about you, when I met you, I was like, really? You did something like that? So how did you get involved with, with those people? Sheriff's Association. Well, you know, that's a, it's an interesting story, because when you think about this, you know, um, I, I did an interview about two months ago on the TV uh, news channel that calls me up pretty regularly, and I talked about being an unlicensed pharmacist. And it was interesting because the interviewer jokingly said, what does that mean? And I explained it. And then I, when I went back, if you look at the piece actually that you talked about when Michelle was with me, he actually said to me, well, Scott, you used to be a drug dealer. Tell us about that. So it is fascinating <laughs> with my background. You know, And the difference, sure. by the way, is interesting. Uh, quick side note, when – I worked with people coming out of jail and prison. The thing I got more than anything else was, you know, you don't understand me. You know, you, you've never been to prison. I said, no, the difference between you and I, very simply, is this. I didn't get caught. You did. Mm-hmm. That's it. You got caught and I didn't. So there's something skill-wise that you had because you survived inside, and there's something right. maybe luck-wise that I didn't get caught in due time. But I said, that doesn't make us different. That just gives us right. skill sets that we help each other with. By the way, I, sure. another foot, the agency I ran, we, at our peak, we had 60 employees. Of those, at one point, we had 40 people who were all ex-offenders, meaning oh my they gosh. had arrested, they had done time, and they right. had um, had their experience incarcerated and came out on parole probation. Because when you mention that number, when I hear that number, 24,000, and by the way, that was individuals. That wasn't even the families that we helped. That was the individual who, because they did well and got better and got better and did well, they could help their families mm-hmm. again, and the reunification sure. was a part of our program. Those individuals, most of them were helped 
by the graduates of the program who, who through an opportunity, were able to give back. So I can't – I'd love to tell you I can take credit for those 24000 but I set the stage. I unlock the doors. People sure. walk through them, and I help people through what I call self-empowerment, where I showed them the way, gave right. them the tools, and then held their hands in the process. But once they got empowered, that's how we scaled it up. You know, they helped others, and they were the next generation of, here's what worked for me. Let me share that with you. And because they'd been there and right. done that, the level of efficacy when they talked to others was so high, people immediately trusted them and were connected to them because their story was the same. So let's go back to the honorary deputy sheriff. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm actually going to a luncheon on Monday, and uh, I've been an active member for years, and I was on the board, and mm-hmm. they've invited me back uh, to potentially put my hat back in the ring to be a board member. I think it really started um, – what happened was is I approached the uh, first responder leadership a long time ago. This was the sheriff, the chief of police, the head of probation and parole – and the DA's office, because they were the prosecuting arm and the public defender. And I said, look, I'm working with all these people. What would happen if we could get all of you to come on our board of directors and be part of the stewardship, the leadership for effecting long-term systemic change? Now, Mm -hmm. all of these leaders in law enforcement sit on boards all the time, but most of them are public safety boards. So it was the first time all of them had actually sat together on a nonprofit charitable board that involved the people that most of them either arrested or were responsible for supervising. So through their connection with the nonprofit I ran, we had some aha moments because now, and the, and the selling point to them joining was, look, we're all serving the same customer. We're just doing it at different times in their career. So what would happen if we used your intellectual property, we got it together and actually became an incarceration alternative agency? And they're like, what? So it didn't make sense to them until they started doing it, and they all got on board because then I kind of made them feel guilty. Well, look, the chief's coming on. Why can't we get the sheriff on? Why can't, you know, why can't we get the DA on? And they all joined, and through our work together, they learned from me, I from them, and from each other that we can create alternatives to incarceration. And now that's one of the biggest things going on in California is how do we keep people out of jail and do it the right way? and empower people. So it was nice to be at the cutting edge. By the way, my experience with corrections was just like the nonprofit world when I said, we want to help keep people out of jail and prison. They're like, Scott, that's not good for our business if people don't come back. I said, I know, but there's plenty of customers. Let's find ways to prevent them from going in. And then if they do get in, find ways for them to get tools when they get out. So the uh, I was approached, you know, worked closely with law enforcement. And one day they said, you know, would you like to come join the Honorary Deputy Sheriff's Association. I said, what is that? Well, it's a foundation that helps raise resources locally, and there's a there's affiliates like this across the country where volunteers work with law enforcement and through foundations and nonprofits raise resources to help the individuals, to help their families, and to be involved with raising awareness and raising resources to help. And here in our community, part of the money that's actually raised here goes to buying equipment and when they're over budget or they don't have enough money for budgets, they'll buy gear, safety gear, you know, right. body armor, certain equipment for because our, our sheriff runs the jail system. And we try to be a resource for them. And also in our community, we have a uh, sheriff's museum where tourists get to come through. Oh, wow. And the uh, HDSA, they call it, Honorary Deputy Sheriff Association, raises resources, maintains, runs the, the actual um, museum itself. And there's a little range mm-hmm. where they get to go out 
to go out and fire guns, and a lot of people love doing that. And it's just an organization cool. that I've kind of been involved with over the years, and I sit on other boards as well. And, and it's something that you know it's passionate to me because I I worked with them for so long, and now well, you know right. in my you know confidential recovery our treatment center we haven't talked about yet, but we actually started out serving first responders. So it's interesting now I'm helping the people who used to arrest hmm. my old. Clients. Well, and that that actually poses an interesting question because I was going to ask you if it was some sort of a surreal feeling for you because obviously when you're on the opposite side of the fence and you're doing so-called drug dealing like you're talking about, and here we are talking about, oh, yeah, and I was doing this honorary deputy sheriff association thing, and I'm thinking, isn't that just a bit awkward? So I guess I wanted to ask you, I'm like – is it is it a bit surreal for you, meaning that you're on the opposite side of the fence? I mean, in the best way possible, obviously, because you're clean, because you're sober, because you have a new life, because you've turned things around. But is it a little different? You know what I mean? Because you know your your life for quite some time wasn't that. Do you know what I mean? Well, no. I've I we, you know it's interesting. We all drive in the same freeway, sometimes at different times right. of the day. And what's fascinating to your point is, you know, I'm also sit on the I sit on the prescription drug task force. I sit on the methamphetamine mm-hmm. task force in our community. And when I'm in those meetings, I bring a level of efficacy from a variety of different perspectives, you know, running a nonprofit, right. working with a customer, being a recovering drug addict, alcoholic, and now, you know, serving on the board of a foundation whose job it is to support the first responders. So I have a lot of empathy for the whole system, which is kind of unusual, but I do it uh, because I think I can – being at the – here's the thing, what I've learned, Cindy, if I could be at the table – if you're really a change agent, and I think of myself as a change agent, if you're not at right. the table, you're either screaming and yelling or criticizing or belittling who's in charge. And I just, I've tried to roll up my sleeves, and I want to be an active partner, and I want to be an active participant in actually helping create systemic change. Meaning, as my kids get older and they have children, I hope we can mm-hmm. figure out a way to figure out a way to really incentivize the leadership of our community to do something about homelessness. I mean, finally, our mayor just appointed uh, a new person whose job it is is to try to assess and come up with new ideas and directions to really start ending homelessness as we know it. And it's gotten so far out of control, it's going to take a huge amount of effort, and it's going to take a high level of consciousness to make it important. Because in our community – Tourism's getting impacted by it. Hotel operators are complaining about it. Their guests are complaining about it. And that's going to hurt tourism. So once it starts to impact the local community economically, I think we'll see a right. lot more serious um, conversations about it. But there's just another article in the paper. They want to study something again. It's like, really? We don't need to friggin' mm-hmm. study anything. We have enough right. data. We know what's Correct. going on. You know, let's start to figure out ways to figure out ways. So, you know, I haven't been pulled back in it, but I'm getting whispers in my ear, and I will get involved if the opportunity makes sense and I can help create systemic change. But I'm not going to go to meetings just to go to meetings. But I have a lot of insight. No, I don't blame you. I've traveled in a variety of different circles. So, And, and again, I'm I'm passionate to people who who work in the first responder field. I mean, watching what's going on with law enforcement across the country and people think they can just go out and, you know, shoot a cop and, and it's just it's insane oh kind of God. behavior That's... i'm not even taking a political no. position I'm just look, if you're going to take a situation where someone's wearing body armor and they're sworn to help uphold the law and they're responsible for keeping you safe and they've now become an active target it scares me because that just sends a message to the community you know none right. of us are safe it's just it's well, scary to me 
I won't I won't give well, up we, until they ask me not to come to the meetings anymore. And since they keep inviting me, there's probably a reason for it. And things are meant to happen for a reason. So I, I support them, and I continue to do it, and I advocate for it, and I say great things on social media. And if I don't like something, I share that as well. So I think it's important. We have a voice. We have a voice in our country that a lot of parts of the world don't. And I think we need to take advantage of it in the right way, in a positive way. Because it does help. Oh, and I agree with you. Definitely. And I, and I think oftentimes too many people are staying silent when they shouldn't. And I think that that also poses part of the issue is, is that you have too many people with opinions that are not speaking. If not enough people are speaking, not enough people are going to listen either. And I think that that's also part of the problem. We need to effectuate change in the best possible way whenever we get a chance to do that, as a matter of fact. Um, now, before we talk about some of the most important things that you have done in your life, like not at, I mean, they're like, first of all, I can't even name how many awards that Scott Silverman has. Literally, if you go to his LinkedIn or you look at Google or you actually just research him, the awards themselves would take 10 minutes to read. So what I am going to say is Scott H. Silverman has tons of awards from tons of different organizations and all very warranted and all very deserved. That much I will say. We are going to talk about the CNN Hero Award recipient, but first of all, I want to talk about two really cool things. First of all, how the heck did you end up throwing out the first pitch at the San Diego Padres game? Way to go. That is so cool. I'm like, oh, my God, he's on the mound and he's throwing the pitch out. How the heck did that happen? That's amazing. Well, you know, it's. It, it, I like to tell you I got lucky, and I. It, but what happened was we actually one day the the, the San Diego Padres obviously they're our baseball team, um, right? And they're they are very community involved and community aware. Mm-hmm. And one day I just I got a phone call from the front office, and they said, "Look, you know, we'd like to honor you with throwing out the first pitch." This is back in the day, by the way. Um, I was much bigger, wasn't in shape, and. It turns out, you know. So, anyways, long story short, I said, "Look, I, I would be honored to do it." And they said, "You can, okay. and we'll pay for twenty of your, you know, guests to come to the game." I said, "But you know, I, I don't really feel comfortable physically. I don't think I'll do a good job. But how about if we bring one of our graduates?" And they go, "Oh my God, that would be awesome, Scott. Do you have someone in mind?" I go, "Look, one of our guys. I'm going to use his name because he lets me do that. His name is Dominic. Okay. He actually works for you guys." And he'd gotten a job in the marketing department. And they go, we, wait, we have one of our employees who's one of your graduates? I said, yes, you do. I, I wonder if our front office is aware of that. I said, I don't know. But I, I said, but here's the problem. Unfortunately, Dominic is legally blind. And, and it, you could oh hear God. her on the other end of the phone lean forward, whisper. She said, look, the way the Padres are pitching, he'll fit right in. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you serious? This is a true story. So anyway, so we picked another guy, a guy named Anthony, and Anthony went out, and, and this is, this is by the way, this is going back a little ways, and he threw out the first pitch. Anyway, okay. fast-forwarding 10 years, I got invited back, and I'd actually lost some weight, and I said, I'm ready to do it, and that's the, the video you probably saw was when I actually yeah. got a chance to throw that first pitch out. So I was, I'm one of the few people that actually got invited twice to do it in my career. running up. So I went out there. It was such a great, you know, and I'm not, my wife's a fan. I'm not. And, you know, she goes, how is it possible that you got chosen to throw the first pitch out again and you don't even go to the games? And her, she and her dad were big fans. They always go to opening day. And we went out there that day, and it was so nice. And we got the 20 tickets, and the graduates were up in the stand. If you look at the video close enough, that's me looking up at them because they were all screaming. And it was just such a nice 
opportunity to, to have a chance to represent the people that I served over the years and be part of that celebration. So that's kind of how it happened. That's awesome. That is. That's amazing. And just when you think it can't get any better, yes, that's right. February 19th, 2008, Scott H. Silverman Day, named by the city of San Diego. How kick-ass is that? Oh, my God. You have your own day. How cool is that? Seriously. Yeah. Is that when it's, awesome? it's funny, when I, I had somebody from high school that said I owed him some money from a drug deal that went bad that called me up. It was so funny, jokingly. He said, hey, you owe me that money for that. Blah, blah, blah. No, that was a great honor. Oh Let me gosh. tell you something. That was the one that, you know, and you're probably going to go the next thing, the CNN thing. But all that happened mm. in one week. It was amazing. amazing. Oh, my God. Really? Yep. February 19th was Scott Silverman Day. And then the next day, what I think was a Wednesday, CNN was here filming. And um, then when they, you know, finished filming on Friday, we had a graduation, and the organization from a congressman um, that was here in our community brought in one of the biggest checks from the government we've ever, ever received to expand our program to help more returning ex-offenders. So it was the best week of my entire adult life as far as recognition, you know, for the organization that I built, for the people that we serve, and it, it was just awesome. It was awesome. That was 2008. I'll never forget it. Uh, and then a couple of months well, later, my book, so it was just your a book great. Came out. Yeah. So well, and here's my year. question to you, because most of the people that are listening to my show, of course, are never, you know, have never had the experience of being a CNN, and you're actually a CNN Hero Award recipient. So give us a little backdrop there so that we understand what that means, meaning that CNN, I'm assuming, picks a hero award each year, each month. Can you give us a little background of what exactly this means? Because obviously this is a huge accolade. So we want to understand exactly what this means, uh, how you're awarded for this, and most importantly, um, how how does that feel knowing, meaning – there are some of us that look and say, oh, we've got all these awards and all this good stuff, but I'm guessing, obviously, your sobriety is the biggest reward. Your getting your own life back is the big thing. But we do want to talk about the CNN Hero Award thing because you are a hero in, in many different extents. But CNN, so let's talk about that. Um, do they notify you? How does this work exactly? Because I've, I've never interviewed a CNN Hero Award recipient. Well, the way it works is uh, somebody nominates you. Um, okay. And it's an active, ongoing uh, process. It, generally, the way it works is they generally have a – I don't know exactly what the process is now, but back in those days, it was the second year they'd done it, and they were uh, they were picking somebody every week. And the pool that I went through, I found out, was nearly 7,700 people. And then oh, my they God. Break it, break it down. They have a committee uh, that, that uh, vets everybody. And I was – and they bring you down to the final hundred. That's when I got a phone call. Said we brought you down to the you're one of the final hundred and of a pool of seventy four hundred plus at that time. Mm-hmm. And we're going to there's going to be three people nominated, and we just want you to know that we 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 hope everyone's nominated, but we can only nominate three. And sure. from the that's usually that rolls over to three weeks, and so they pick one a week. So if you think about it, you know there's one a week, there's fifty two a year. They did that back in 08. Um, there's only so many of us right now on the globe, and they continue to keep that program going, and then they, they honor the, I think it's the 10 uh, winners of the year, that from the 10 winners, they, they pick the top one every, as a matter of fact, there's, I think, a segment coming up in a week. Every December they do that. So they called me and basically said, you know, we're really, really sorry. Um, we have gotten down to the finalists, and unfortunately you weren't one of the three. 
and I was so God, I was so upset. I thought, God, I really, I didn't even know what the honor really meant, you know, other than it was going to bring a lot of attention to the agency, and you know, as a right. as the lead fundraiser, it was going to keep create opportunities for fundraising and give us some national attention. Um, anyway, so two weeks later, I get this phone call, and I looked at my phone and saw CNN. I thought, oh my God, now I'm in trouble. And I thought, well. <laughs> Oh, we got to tell you, we've changed our mind. And I go, what? We, we changed our mind. And I said, let me guess. The person in front of me didn't pass the background check? <laughs> <laughs> I was half joking. I don't know what happened, but, you know, I got chosen as one of three, and then they come, they, you know, they come out and they film you, and they film me during that week um, that all that was going on, said this probably won't air for three to four months unless something catastrophic happens. And then it turned out, like, Four weeks later, there was a major um, issue around some sort of prison reentry reform that was being considered. So they said, mm-hmm. we're going to run this next week. Get ready. So I said, what do you mean get ready? Said, well, expect a lot of attention. We have quite a following. And that was the week they launched. It was the week, if I'm not mistaken, that President uh-huh. Obama was on Larry King and he was mm-hmm. announcing his run for presidency. So it was a hugely viewed show, and of course it ran over and oh over gosh. and over, like CNN does. Right. So we got right. in the next few days almost five thousand inquiries across the country from families or, oh my or agents. God. It was overwhelming. I mean, we we couldn't even handle the phone calls. It was overwhelming. Oh, I imagine. You know, and I, I believe a lot of the CNN heroes, because of their platform, created tremendous opportunity. So to me, I I continue to you know wear it per se, but it's in my resume as a badge of honor. And it's always been an honor to be um, to be a CNN hero and to be chosen you know, that way. And it was a couple you know a couple people that knew me, and it was actually a guy in my actually in my fellowship, twelve step program, whose uh, submission got picked up. So it was uh, oh. it was interesting. It was a really exciting time, and it's an honor to be uh, one of chosen as one of the heroes. Sure, certainly. Speaking of heroes, one of the things that I sense, um, and uh, to those of you that don't know, I, I understand that your father had passed just about a year ago, and I would assume that he played a fundamental part in the person that you've become today. And so if you don't mind sharing just a, a wee bit about your dad, obviously he's not with us anymore, but what sort of impact he had, and, and I'm assuming that he would be delightfully elated and, and proud and just beams about the person that you've become Um just tell us a little bit about how he has inspired you to be a better person. Well, you know, both my folks actually have been uh, significant in my life. And, and actually the program that I started was actually a, a concept that my mom had done a very long time ago. And through her inspiration, she used to work with minority women to help them find jobs through our temple. And she used to make mm-hmm. the women take the city bus to come to training, which was hard. And, but her attitude was, you know what? If people can't make it to a training, they're never going to make it to a job interview. So it was, ah. it was part of the dry run testing and the opportunity for it. So what I learned from them, you know, is what I carry and go forward with and I push and I work at, you know, each day. So I know that my folks have always been uh, very, very supportive and have always been willing to, you know, they came to all my events. <clears throat> they came to graduations whenever they could. And my mom would always talk about me to her group and her friends, 
And in many ways, you know, she was a big part of how the organization grew was her support and my dad's. And, you know, I grew up in a family retail clothing business, so it certainly wasn't something that um, I would have normally done because I wasn't really trained for it, if you will. So what I tried to do is honor the support I got from them and really, you know, think about each day uh, what I'm about to do and how I can make a difference. So... That's uh, you know kind of how it works. Is I uh, I think of them and you know and it's it's interesting because I've been thinking about them a lot the last week or so. It's been a year for my dad and two oh. years for my mom, my mother-in-law gotcha. and my father. In the last couple of years, it's been a so we're now in the holiday time, you know, and that's when families together a lot. Of course. And, you know, I'm just uh, it's kind of been some sad couple of days. So thanks for bringing that up, oh, and I'm I appreciate sorry. it. I do well, no, no, definitely, I and I well, and I think that they play a fundamental part. Usually, when it comes down to you know family, of course, they're your first foundation. So obviously, eventually, they they play a part clearly in the person that we become. Now, obviously, just so you folks, in case you don't know, not only are all these other accolades out there, but he's also been featured on NBC San Diego. He's been in San Diego Magazine. Um, one of the things that I want to talk about actually is, and the first thing that we'll discuss is this, and it's you do. Um, I've always said this, that one of the best parts about being a motivational speaker, which you have done in the past and continue to do, is not only do you motivate the crowd that's in front of you, but you also make them think and toll and assess uh, what their next step is going to be. So I'd like you to talk about the motivational, motivational speaking part of your life. Why is it important to you that you impact other lives? Is it because you come from a place of, okay, I used to use and now here I am and I'm clean and I want to make other people clean? Is it because you want to impress upon them the dangers involved with this? Tell me why it's so important that you touch other lives by motivating them to be better people. Why is that important for you? Well, I think that's a great question. I think it's important for me because, you know, when I think about, now that the business I'm in of being in the treatment business, you know, I know that for a fact that 360 people die every day. And I just think, I think that is avoidable. And I think that we can do a better job of finding ways to do a better job. So for me, it's just, I don't know how to not make it important. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't don't know. Yeah, so it's it's kind of, I would tell you, it's probably, maybe it's not always been organic, but it feels organic to me right now, and that's what I do, and I just, I won't let go until um, I can see some opportunities for change, because I don't want to be in a position where I don't give back. Does that make sense? And, and to be honest, mm-hmm. I've learned in my own recovery, if you don't give it away, you can't keep it. If you don't give it away... You can't keep it. It so, makes sense. It definitely does. No, I and I understand I exactly what you're saying. It's a value, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Well, now before I forget, I don't want to touch. I don't want to forget to touch upon this. I know that you went to Orange Coast College, and that's where you studied business and marketing. So my question to you is, because I'm sure other people would want to ask this, because you've gone on to do other things like crisis counseling, et cetera, et cetera. So. Did you do continuing, continuing, excuse me, education? Meaning that obviously you've gone on done other studies, things like that. Have is that important to you? Do you even have time to do that? I was going to say, is education a paramount thing for you? 
and have you been able to fit it in, and are you going to continue to pursue that? Because I could see you actually, honestly, teaching, teaching, like literally being in classroom, teaching on more of a regular basis. Am I nuts for thinking that? Because that, that's just something that crossed my mind. Well, and, and to be honest with you, I, it's funny, my junior college experience, I think I started nine of them. So okay. I am not... I am not formally educated. I don't. I'm not a clinician. I don't have a doctorate anywhere. Most of my gotcha. experience comes from, you know, the school of hard knocks. It also comes from experience of, um, you know, experiential. And I part of what I try to do with my give back is to let people know that there is hope and help, and there's ways to get things done if you're willing to take the time to do that. So that's part of right. what I like to do and how I like to do it. And that makes sense, of course. Now, the three big things that we have to talk about here is before I get to the book, which is, of course, Tell Me No, I Dare You, which is the book that you had done in 2009. I want to backtrack a little bit. Um, and I want to do this because, of course, obviously, I think I might have mentioned this before, New York City is my eventual home state. I live in Wisconsin. I'm eventually going to move to, move to New York. The last two or three trips that I've taken, um, the very first thing that was brought to my attention by very dear friends of mine was the ongoing increasing usage of pain medication, you know, addiction to oxycodone, addiction to pills of all kinds. So I guess we should talk about the elephant in the room because far better, who better to talk to than you? Um, Just to get your take of this, because we've discussed this on the program more than once. If I were to ask you why you feel that this is becoming such an epidemic and, and not even so much, I don't think it's even categorized. I know a lot of people are saying that it's the youth, meaning that it's our younger generation. I don't know that that's the case. So talk to me a little bit about your worries in terms of, and coming from this background, why it's so easy for a person to get sucked into the addiction of pain medication or drug usage, et cetera. And more importantly, I guess it's a twofold question. Why is it that people get sucked into using? And then, of course, to some of us who are on the opposite side of the fence, who have loved ones who are users or addicts. It's a two-way well, street, obviously, the addict's on one side of the fence and the loved ones are on the other side of the fence. So we want to address both sides of the fence. So first, let's talk about the problem itself. What, in your opinion, having come from this, why is this such a growing concern? Why is it becoming bigger and more it's, – it's, it's a craze, literally, for lack of a better term. What is the appeal to this? Why is this such a big thing now? Are we gonna, we're gonna, let's talk specifically. We're going to talk about the opiate addiction, for example, the Oxycontin, what's Correct. going on with that. Okay, well, good. Correct. Well, here's, the thing. here's what I understand, okay, and I probably know more than most but don't know all the information. Mm-hmm. The, back in, I guess, in the Reagan days, you know, it was Reagan who mandated that doctors prescribe pain medication. If a patient came in and said, I have pain, they were mandated to do that. They couldn't withhold. So it was, it was set as a right. policy. Just this year, the AMA and the CDC came out and said that Oxycontin, uh, as the studies now show, no longer are effective for long-term pain treatment. Now, to give you an idea of how robust this problem is, in 2015, 264 264 million prescriptions were written for opiates. Think about that. 264 million in one year. So 
what's happened is, you know, we're a pill-popping country. People know that, and they hear that all the time. Of and, course. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 80, 85% of the Oxycontin that is consumed globally is done right here in the U.S. So it's part of our culture. So, and there's a, there's a person out there, I call him the accidental addict, you, for example, Cindy, you hurt your knee. You go for uh, uh, an adjustment. It turns out you need to have you know, some surgery done or partial knee replacement. So let's keep it simple. You go for have a wisdom tooth pulled and you have pain. Most doctors historically will give you 90 days worth of pain medication without any questions asked. And if you're predisposed, and a lot of people are, to that high dosage of you know, mood-altering substance, oxycodone, it's very toxic, very strong. Right. They get addicted to it, and all of a sudden, you know, six, nine months down the road, you're seeing other doctors because your doctor won't script up anymore, or you're going to multi-doctors, and then you're finding ways to drug-seek, and then you're finding ways to get more drugs. I mean, 264 million prescriptions just for opiates. Think about that for a second. That's a lot of scripts. Were there 330 million people in our country back in 2015? So, oh, my God. You know, I call this a plague right now. It's no, it was an epidemic, then it became a pandemic, and now it's right. like a plague. You see these overdoses right. that are on, and then, and then what happens is, and and there's a recent study just came out locally that something like a third of the people that are using heroin started through um, prescription medication. Most of it's scripted by a doctor. Some of it's stolen from other ways to get a hold of it. Medicine cabinets, you know stolen at a doctor's offices. People take, you know, the script pads and they fraudulently go to pharmacies. But most of it's legitimately written by doctors. And it's an interesting finite world because only a doctor can write a prescription and legitimately. So that's a major issue. And then now, and because Oxycontin, for example, I know in most major cities is roughly $80 a pill when you can go spend Mm -hmm. $15 and you can use heroin to replace it. So, you know, we're hearing in the news almost every day, every major city in the country has had an issue with this, some, some more than others. You hear about 18 overdoses in a weekend, and of those, 16 people died because they got a hold of a bad batch of something being mixed with heroin. Fentanyl is one of the new mixes that's taking place, and fentanyl is being made offshore right now and being mixed with heroin. Give me an interesting story. I just heard two months ago at my task force meeting, and one of the big distributors was, was arrested and interviewed the story went something along the lines of, why would you sell a product to somebody knowing it was going to kill people? Why would you do that to your consumer? And the distributor's answer was, when people die from new drug or new drug names or new mix or toxicology mixes, if you were, mixologies, it's good for business because everybody else who's addicted to something wants to try it. So what's killing our family members and loved ones is a marketing tool for drug manufacturers and distributors in the U.S. Go figure that out. That's a true story. So when you talk about solve a problem and the fact that, you know, it's legal, you know, professional practitioners, i.e. doctors, dentists, veterinarians, other people who can write scripts are the only ones who can do it legally because they're licensed to the DEA and permitted to do that. So, but the education component of that and the time it's going to take, and then look, imagine this, you have a patient load, and let's say your specialty is surgery, and 80% of your patients who have surgery take pain medication, and of the 80%, let's say 40% get addicted. 
what are you going to do to your patient? Say, look, Sally, you got to stop taking those pills. I can't give them to you anymore. And Sally's going to go, what? So this transition we have to go through to get these, I call them accidental addicts. Not, I'm not talking about the street mm-hmm. user, but the accidental addict. How are we going to convince them to stop taking medication when they don't even believe they have a problem because their, their medication comes from their doctor? And, you know, drug addiction is a disease of denial. And, you know, it was the right. Surgeon General just three weeks ago finally came out after 50 years. A report came out and said substance abuse, alcohol, and addictions are not a moral deficiency. They are a physical disease, just like cancer and diabetes. The report just came out three weeks ago. So I think we have a game changer right now in front of us, which is going to make access to treatment different. It's going to help reduce the stigma for families to get their loved ones help. And it's going to change the way the insurance industry is going to be mandated to make sure that there's resources for people who want to get off of addictive substances. So that's the good news. What it's going to take, you know, 60 people dying every day, 94 of them from prescription medication, it's over a third or a quarter. You know, if we don't change things quicker, that 360 is going to jump to five and 600. Soon it'll go to 1,000, and more people will be dying from drugs and alcohol than cancer. Of course. No, I think it stands to reason, of course, and, and I guess I should allow you the opportunity to share what you're comfortable with sharing, of course, because obviously you've lived this life for a significant amount of time, as you mentioned, of course, having an addiction, et cetera. Um, I, I guess if you could share with us a bit of your experience in terms of um, some of the, the the pains and some of the fear and, you know, to those of us that aren't addicts, we have no idea of what it's like to live in that pandemonium to live in that, uh, that world of addiction and, and needing doing just about anything to have what you need or, or what you conceivably need at that point. So share a bit of your story with my listening audience, as well as um, I know a, a good number of people, sadly, uh, in fact, a dear friend of mine just lost her child actually to addiction. And so uh, there are many, many parents out there who struggle with, the, the big question, which is to love the person that's the addict. Not You don't have to love the addiction, but you love the addict, and that is very difficult. So maybe talk to us a little bit about how you can love that person even though their actions are unlovable. Does that make sense? And I don't mean unlovable, meaning... No, you know, I hear you. I think another way that I would... manipulate or lie or, or they steal or they do things that we can't understand. As a person who's a non-addict, you look at this and you say, how can you do this to someone you love? But it's not really them. It's their addiction that's working and doing that. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how to... How do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? How do you accept that as part of your reality? meaning their reality becomes your reality when you love well, let's, them. Let's do this. Let's just shift gears quickly, and let's assume that you and I were sure. talking about somebody who's a diabetic, okay? Sure. Say, you know, my uh, sister is a diabetic, let's say, hypothetically. We would have such a different conversation. And and, and the Surgeon General has just said and put in writing, um, you – if you have this maladaptive behavior, this disease, it's actually a physical disease now. And at the end of the day, you are not responsible for it because you didn't choose it. And you're not consciously trying to find a way to feed it. You are an individual who has a disease, who needs to get 
the appropriate proper treatment, and if you do, you can live a long, healthy life. So if you look at people, if you will, who have this disease, and they're not an addict, but they're an individual who has this disease, because if you talk about somebody who has a disease, nobody chooses it. I've never met anybody who wakes up and says, today I'm going to do everything I can to put as much poison in my body as possible because I want to end my life. It's not a conscious decision for most people. Most people, once they're in the trajectory of being addicted or consuming something mood-altering that alters the way their mind works, they seek it. Imagine this. we If you and I got together and we ate chocolate every day, every day, morning, noon, and night, <laughs> and then, and then okay, one day our – you know, our friend said, gee whiz, Scott, you and your friend Cindy seem to be growing. Why is that? And then they said, well, we're, we're, we eat chocolate every day. And then you're told you can't eat chocolate anymore. Your body would go through withdrawals if you stopped it immediately, and it would crave it. So when it comes to talking to a person who is addicted, I don't think of that person as an addict. I think of that person who has an addiction, meaning there's nothing wrong with them. They're not broken. They have a problem. They have an illness. Right. They have a disease. He said, they have a disorder, whatever you want to call it, and it's got to be treated. And you can't just treat it at home by watching more Dr. Phil. You've got to go see an expert. You can't just go on YouTube. You've got to get right. diagnosed. You need to be evaluated. Then a treatment plan has to be put in place. And then you have to follow that plan. I mean, it is that simple, but it's not that easy. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. I, I guess the one thing that I wanted to address, because I happen to be friends with a number of friends, and one of the friends that I was talking to, actually, who one of her son, who's an adult child, actually, had left home, and he has done this. And, and one of the things that I hear often that people struggle with is the relapse, meaning someone goes in, they get a you know, they get help, they try to recover, they go into a detox facility, or they, you know, they take a counteractive drug, et cetera. They're on a road to recovery, and then for whatever reason, something goes wrong in life, and they relapse again, then they relapse again and again. And so I think I see a lot of families that struggle that ask themselves, well, what are we not doing, or what can we do? Because they watch this child, or they watch the loved one keep falling and falling and falling. They want to get better, but they're not, you know what I mean? They're almost a slave to that addiction. So I guess that's, that's kind of what I'm saying is how do, what can you do? Is there anything you can do at that point if, if they kind of keep almost relapsing in a sense? Does that make sense? Like they just, they, the, the no, intent absolutely. is there, Just but to give you an example, happening. this industry that I'm in, substance abuse treatment industry, is about a $40 billion industry and has a documented um, 95% failure rate, 95% failure rate. Could you imagine oh if you ran your life and your business and had a 95% failure rate, how long you'd be in business or have a life? And what, what happens is, I'm going to go back to diabetes because it's so easy to understand that. Example, you get diagnosed, you have to check your blood sugar level every day for the rest of your life. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. And in that checking, you have to potentially take uh, a dosage of insulin that is predicated on what's going on with what your blood sugar level is doing during the day. And I'm oversimplifying. I'm not a doctor, clearly. No, so, of course. The way it works with recovery, meaning you have to do something each day. And if you don't, what happens is that disease will crop back into your body, mind, and soul. It will take over, and then the decision-making process of whether you get loaded or not is no longer a decision-making process because you've jumped out of the plane. You can't stop it. So 
When you define or describe somebody who is chronically relapsing, the odds are very, very high that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Now, there's a term out there. It's called MAT, medication-assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. Some people need medication along with just taking themselves off the mood-altering substances. They need to be assisted, antidepressants maybe even Suboxone. Some people go to methadone, you know, and there are other mechanisms out there today that we've learned that help people not only get off but stay off. There's another uh, terrific medication out there. It's called Vivitrol. It's actually an opiate blocker, meaning once you're off the mood-altering opiates, you can actually get this injection, and the science says for 30 days you don't have a craving. So there are tools out there, Cindy, that people can utilize. The difficulty is okay. if you're not ready or you're not willing right. or you don't want to stop or you're not willing to practice it. Give me an example. Let's go back to food, for example. If you wanted to lose 20 pounds, you couldn't do it by thinking about it. You just couldn't. You'd have right. to apply some changes in your food intake. You might have to do some exercise and burn some calories. You'd have to adjust what you eat, when you eat it. And more than likely, if you don't know how to do it, you're going to go ask for help. Same right. thing with recovery. If you don't know how to do it, you're going to have to ask for help. And, you know, people say, how can I afford to spend that kind of time? And when you talk to the average, I'll tell I'm an example, average drug addict, alcoholic. I was loaded probably 70 hours a week. And when I wasn't loaded, I was impaired probably another 70 hours a week. So what I tell people is, look, take 10% of what you spent under the influence and the preparation to be under the influence, and spend that on your recovery. It's about an hour a day. And if you think about you look at the healthy people, the people that are happy and balanced and they're meditating and journaling or you know building metal art for their yard, they're doing about an hour a day of something positive, picking up a book, reading it, praying, whatever it is they do. They're doing something to feel better, to be better, and be better to feel better. Right. That's really what I ask people to think about and I really do I suggest it and I believe one size doesn't fit all I run an outpatient program some people call me I call today oh my son's coming out with an inpatient program and he needs to be supervised and I said well who's going to do that well can't I hire people I said well there's people that do that but I only want it for 12 hours a day so what are you going to do the other 12 right because your family member is going to drink not during the 12 they're supervised but when they're not supervised well of course well of course yeah Certainly. And that begs the obvious question, which is, of course, the other thing besides second chance, which we originally talked about, but of course you also confidential recovery, which is a substance abuse, substance abuse recovery program. So talk to me a bit about in, in confidential recovery, what types of individuals do you treat? Who do you deal with? Moreover, I, I guess if there's such a thing, I'm trying to phrase this question in the right way. Um, I know that you deal with doctors, lawyers, things like that. If you could talk to us a little about in your experience, what you've determined, meaning that, like I talk to some people and they, they seem to feel that it's the younger age group that has the issue. Sometimes I'm in another crowd, like in the entertainment industry, it seems prevalent, sad, but true. When it comes to entertainment in the entertainment business, it's prevalent drug usage, alcohol usage, etc. So talk a little bit about what your program provides, who you treat, and most importantly, what's your fundamental goal with confidential recovery? Okay. Confidential recovery, 
we're a licensed facility in San Diego, California. What that means is because we're licensed, we can take insurance, and we're in network, which is kind of unusual for independent, okay. standalone outpatient programs. And when an individual comes to us, it's a traditional six-week program for only 54 hours, roughly three hours a day. That's pretty much what insurance will tell you they'll pay for. And, you know, probably 20% of our clients are cash pay clients because they want to stay below the radar. And the idea of confidential recovery right. was to cre- be created for and was put together to be able to deal with people who maybe don't need residential treatment or can't afford to leave their job or their special arrangements, or they just don't feel like they need an inpatient program, or they may not need one. And science shows an inpatient program by itself is just not enough. So what we do is we provide that six-week intensive outpatient, we call it, which is kind of more of a three-hour group facilitated by marriage family therapists or psychologists, and we work with them in groups to talk about what one needs to do to live life without mood-altering substances. And that goes on for about six weeks, and then they move into or what's called step-down to an outpatient program. And then what we believe is our secret sauce, our differentiator, is we, we try to encourage people to stay involved for two years. Now, whether it's once a week or once a month, but being tethered, if you are connected to something, to helps release you know, the individual's conscious thought about what do I do next, we are connected. You come back in, you check in. That, we believe, according to science says and evidence that by staying connected, you can reduce recidivism, relapse the first year by 50%. Mm-hmm. If people will stay engaged year two, you can reduce it in half again. That's a 75% recidivism reduction rate. Now, I want you to remember my example I gave you a while ago in our in your show when I mentioned mm-hmm. the program I was before, four weeks with a two-year follow-up, reduced recidivism 75%. So I've already actually experientially and anecdotally worked with a uh, evidence-based program that I ran with the idea that you got the tools and then you had support monitoring and efficacy to connect long-term so you get to learn how to work those tools. And when something isn't working because you're still connected, you can, you can pick up the phone, you can text somebody, you can reach out, and you can deal with what's going on with someone rather than trying to doing it alone. Because most of us, when it comes to life skills, it if you've been under the influence from age 15 to 30 or 40, you have no idea how to deal with sobriety. You know how to get drunk. Right. You know how to lie, cheat, manipulate. You know how to steal money. You know how to gamble. You know how to act out. You know how to do, you know, get DUIs, crash cars, and ruin families. But when it comes to getting sober, if you've never done it before, you cannot do it alone. It's just almost physically impossible because you don't have the tools. Now, through treatment, you get the tools. Through sobriety and recovery, you get to implement those tools, but it takes, according, again, to science and evidence, almost a minimum of three years to have some form of a transformation where you're putting that relapse in a place where it isn't easily picked up again, but could still happen. For example, I still go to meetings every week, and I'm 32 years of continuous sobriety. I go because... Everyone told me that's what's going to keep you sober, and that was a tool, and it did, and it has. And I've learned other things as well. And I work, we work with people, to your second part of your question, professionals, but they're family members as well. You know, we have some right. people that are retired. We have doctors. We have lawyers. We have first responders. We have professionals who aren't comfortable walking into a traditional treatment setting because they're just not the stigma, their anonymity, 
the confidentiality, and there's a fear factor they might see someone they know. Even though when they get sober, most people realize everyone around them knew, Johnny, hmm. we knew you had a problem. You came to work the last year late every day. You missed meetings. You couldn't read your script on the air, and any time you did a radio interview and you were drunk, you had a whole different caller calling you. Really? Yeah, really. So that's why the connection and having the support. You know, in every major city and county and community has those kind of tools available. They really do. But unless you're asking for help, and again, the Surgeon General just said, gave everyone permission, guess what? It's a physical illness. You can now stop trying to blame it on individuals' inability to try right. to make a decision. I don't get a choice. Unfortunately, I was born with this disease, and I'm going to do everything I can personally to make it the most important part of my life. So I start my day with what I need to, and I try to end right. it each day. It doesn't take a lot of time, but I make my sobriety the most important thing because I know that if I don't, I know what the consequences will be. I really do. Of course. Now, the other two questions that I have for you before we wrap it up, and I'll go through all the ways where people could find you, et cetera, we want to do two different things. First of all, I want you to talk, of course, which we referenced before, which is in 2009. Talk to us about Tell Me No, I Dare You, which is a guide for living a heroic life. I want you to tell the folks, give them a backdrop story in terms of what the book is about, which we can all surmise already, of course. But tell us a little bit about what we can learn about you that we don't already know by reading this book and how we can benefit from reading this book. Well, the book was really written, you know, and the title, Tell Me No, I Dare You, was all about how to get to yes. The theory behind the book was, you know, I wanted people to, to hear and feel the stories that are in there about people that I served and the successes they had once they had an opportunity to get the tools they need to, to move their life forward. So, and, 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 and again, it's another tool, and that's why I wrote the book. Right. And, and, it was, and I wasn't a writer, and I don't really don't think of myself as an author, <laughs> but I really think of myself more as an orator. So I actually worked with a ghostwriter. I'm on my second book now, and I'm using another ghostwriter. And what I just do is I'm getting the experience, strength, and hope that I've gotten now, and I'm asked, I probably have 50 people contributing right now. And what that book should sure. be, hopefully, is a resource, the new one, a more fine-tuned, specific resource if you're a family member, a coworker, a son, a daughter, a sibling, a parent, a cousin, a neighbor, or a colleague. And in there will be anecdotal stories of what this person experienced and what they went through to help that person they care about get access to the appropriate level of care. Ah, okay. Now, on the opposite side of the fence, I want to ask this other question, because to those of you that have not visited his website or read any information about him, I want you to touch upon this, because I know that you've mentioned before in your role as being a crisis counselor, the way that you attack, um, or the way that I should say you approach counseling is a little bit different than some of the other people that are out there. So talk to people about, if they come to visit you and they say, hey, you know, our family is in crisis, we need help, talk a little bit about the methods and the, and, and the the means and the methods by which you use to help families to try to get through crisis? Well, one of the things that I do that's probably a little different than some, first of all, I'm not a clinician. So what I do is I approach this right. from a standpoint of real-life stuff. So, for example, a family member calls me. They have a, a, a child who's acting inappropriately. And I said, what does that mean to you? And they define it for me, acting out, stealing money, crashing cars, so we talk about the dynamics of what's going on. So what I try to do is really get between 
the family member and the person they're calling about. Because first of all, it's really hard on families to try to help somebody. More than likely, if they're calling me, they've probably made numerous attempts. More than likely, the attempts have failed, not because of their lack of trying, but because the person who's got the behavior issue, if there's substance abuse induced or they're suffering from some form of addiction or alcoholism or other addictions, whether it's gambling, sex, food, Internet, um, then mm. they don't understand what to do. I mean, why would you try to go rotate the tires on your car if you've never done it before? So why are you trying to help a sure. loved one? stop drinking and using if you don't know what to do. So what I try to do is get in there, intervene behavior, basically work with the family to try to assess the best way to identify how we get that loved one help or level of care to get the assessment going. So that's what I do. Okay. I intervene on the family, not the because I think the term intervention and, and it's interesting because it was even mentioned in the um, Surgeon General's report, traditional interventions, as we all think of them, family gets together in a circle and basically tells the person right. what they can feel and how they love them. That format, that template, historically has not worked. It either drives the person deeper into the foxhole to hide what they're doing more, or the person will jump and go, I call it shut-up treatment, they'll shut everybody up in the room and they'll go to treatment for the wrong reasons. Do interventions work? Absolutely. But the old way of doing it, science says, has not been effective, which contributes, if you will, to the short-term success but the long-term failure, which is the relapse. So to answer your earlier question, I'm not sure I did, what do we want to do with confidential recovery? We want to reduce recidivism. That If I could change the 95% rate in the next three years by one point, I will have done a significant uh, job in trying to create systemic change. And that's really what I want to do. I want to be a spokesperson for families to get access to help, and I want to be a spokesperson who talks about it in an open, honest way and says, look, you can't treat this as if they've made a decision to do this or not do it. Your loved one, your family member, your neighbor, your coworker, has a disease, and now science has confirmed it, and now we can start talking about getting people real help, but more importantly for the family to understand what their role is in this, and getting education to young people, Cindy, because right. if we don't start talking to kids in 20 more right. years, the current plague that we currently have, that 360 per day could go as high as 2,500, 3,000 a day. Who knows? Could you imagine? Exactly. Losing I don't a million for something that's totally treatable, and it is treatable. Right, right, exactly, and that's and you touched on it right there. You have to start off. We have to go back to the youth, to the younger generation. Start educating, getting people to know and be informed, and and that's where it all starts. I agree with you, one hundred and fifty percent. Now, um, I want to go through the different ways where people can find you, but before I do that, I want to ask if it, there are people or families or individuals listening in that might need help or might want to solicit your services. Is it best for them to go via the website? Should they call you directly? What's the best means to be able to get a hold of you in terms of that part of what you do? Well, you know, let's go to the generational point you had earlier. Some people, I, I'm going to give you my cell phone number so people can okay. text me. I'm going, to, okay. and I'm going to give you that now. It's uh, the area code 619-993-2738. That's my cell right. number, 619-993-2738. So you can text me. 
or you can call me. Then I'm going to give you my uh, the website for the treatment center, which is Confidential Recovery, confidentialrecovery.com. You can Google it, and you can email me through the website. Then my other crisis coaching website is your crisis coach, yourcrisiscoach.com, and you can email mm-hmm. me through there as well. So there's no excuse. I'm easy to find, and I encourage people. And when it comes to coaching, by the way, 90% of my coaching is done by phone. So if somebody lives ah, okay. in New York, we can work this right. by phone because there's resources in your community. I will help guide you. I don't have a Rolodex of all the resources, but I can, based on what we're talking right. about, based on what's going on, based on what you're sharing with me, I'll give you at least three or four different directions you can go in to start getting access, A, to information, B, to education, and C, to opportunities to get your loved one or your family member or your coworker or your employee access to help. It's not that hard. It's actually pretty easy today because there's a lot of it out there on the web. Now, I don't. Let me read off the rest of this. Now you can rest yourself actually for two minutes, and I'll read off this this bunch of different places where people can find you. Of course, obviously, as we had mentioned, the book itself, which of course I'll read one more time in case some of you aren't paying attention. 2009 version, which is "Tell Me No, I Dare You: A Guide to Living a Heroic Life," which can be found on Amazon.com. Scott can also be found on YouTube. He has a Twitter handle, which is at Scott H. Silverman, and Silverman is spelled S-I-L-V-E-R-M-A-N. He has a LinkedIn profile. As he mentioned, the website, yourcrisiscoach.com. Also, I can speak today, Confidential Recovery. He actually has Facebook, I should mention this, three different places on Facebook, his personal page, which is Scott H. Silverman, your crisis coach, and also confidential recovery. Have I missed anything? Did I forget anything? I hope not. No, but the only thing I might fine-tune is if you're interested in getting the book, because I keep them at my home, go yeah. to my crisis coaching site. You can buy it there, and I'll ship it to you directly, and that way I can sign it. You can get it through Amazon, but then I, I ship it to Amazon, then they ship it to you. And Got it. Okay. I, I would – more than happy to send you a copy of the book, and you can purchase it through yourcrisiscoach.com, and then we can you know, awesome. maybe get a conversation started and talk about how I can be a resource or maybe tap into some of your resources. And what I try to right. do, you know, what I call creative thinking and our reflective thinking, is we look at what, what's going on, and we figure out a way to intervene on that behavior and find ways mm-hmm. to get as to the highest and best level of care based on what's going on. And I can do almost all of that by phone. And if nothing else, we can come up with a plan that's probably different than what you've already tried. If that sounds that's inviting. Awesome. I, I so love the fact that you can do the phone thing because today in today's age, obviously that's just fundamentally important because most of us think of the traditional version of if we want to get help, we have to do this or this. So that's absolutely awesome. Now the last part of my show, cause we're at the final end here and I know I've kept you probably far longer than you wanted, but there's just so many fascinating things about you that I couldn't help myself. The very last part of my show is always dedicated to my having the opportunity to tell my guests what I think of him. <laughs> so in this case, I get to tell you, Scott Silverman, what I think of you, because I really honestly didn't 100% get to do that after the Greyhound bus station going to the hotel. I kind of really never got a chance to tell him what I think of him. So the whole point of this last part of the conversation is to let both my audience as well as you know what I think of you, both personally and professionally. This is the only part of my show that is non-scripted, by the way. This is totally off the cuff. Um, 
and I think it's important that people understand what I think of you in both manners, and hopefully this will solicit not only more attention to what you're doing, but you as a person. Um, so these are my impressions of Scott Silverman. I have to tell you, the very first time I met him, I thought, and he doesn't know this, but I'm going to say this, I thought, oh, my gosh, I was having these conversations with him and thinking, this man is a total smartass. He's very sarcastic, and he is very sarcastic in the best sort of way. He's got a great sense of humor, very intelligent man. I knew very little of him, actually. Steve Joyner came to me, and he said, I have this friend. You should interview him. He's a terrific guy. You really should get to know him. He's got this great book. And I thought, Okay, well, somebody's soliciting me for an interview, and I thought, all right, let's find out who this guy is. Never met him before. Told him that I was coming to San Diego. Immediately, without hesitation, does he offer to come and pick me up, which is not only gallant, but it's very generous. Took time away from his family, took time away from other things, I'm sure. But he was very sweet. He was very patient. He was very polite. And, and most importantly, he was nothing but gentlemanly and very, very sweet and concerned about my safety. So the first thing you need to know about this man is he genuinely is a good, decent human being. The fact that he is so able and so willing to admit his downfalls and to be able to use them as a benefit to help other people is not only encouraging and delightful and amazing to me, but it makes him a hero. Why? Because his ability to have hit rock bottom is also his ability to be able to save people from hitting rock bottom over and over and over again. What we are lacking in this generation nowadays is a thousand more Scott Silvermans to be able to be heroes in the society. One of the things that I love most is when people recommend people like you to come on my show. Why? Because when they come on my show, they don't know it, but they have messages for me. And you, my dear friend, have a message for me that you have delivered, and I appreciate it more than I can tell you. What I can say about the man on the other end of this phone is he is humble, he is humane, he is sweet, he is dear dear in every sense of the word. He means everything that he says. He is true to his word. He is true in intent. And he is true in his purpose to be able to help other people with not only recovering, but becoming better, successful people in this world, having a home to live in, having a job to go to, and making meaning in their lives. It matters to him, and it matters to him how many people he touches. I am a better person by knowing him. You are a better person by not only reading his books, but by soliciting his help. He has much that he can pass on to you. He is wise beyond measure, and he is probably one of the most decent human beings I've met this year. I am honored that you have given me two hours of your time. I pray that I will spend the rest of my life knowing you because you are a wonderful human being, and you are totally a blessing in my life. And know that my home, my heart, and my show are open to you anytime. That's what I think of you. <laughs> are, are well, you okay? I hope <laughs> It's, uh, um, I'm not generally at a loss for it. Those are very, very kind I'm things sorry. to say in our short time. Those are very time. honest things to say. No, and, and I appreciate all of it and your candor and, and the fact that you've, you know, I, I appreciate you taking this kind of time and of you're course. seeking information and knowledge and being willing to listen and knowing that you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get this message out to others. And, and you know, if, if one person calls me in the next week or emails me, and I can be of service and help to them, then that's somebody that's not going to become one of those statistics that next right. time we this, we're talking about, it's actually somebody who is able to, to, to hear it, to get it, to believe it, and do something about it. That would be just awesome. Exactly. Yeah, oh, and I agree with you 150%. And definitely, like I said, don't be a stranger. Certainly, I'm, I am going to um, – 
we'll be talking because I was supposed to call you and I didn't get a chance to. So we have some things that we should talk about, definitely. And I will finish the book. I did start the book. I just didn't finish it. So I will finish the book. I'll give you my impressions on that. And I will reach out to you sooner than later because we do have something that we, we should talk about. I just, I'm, I'm just so god-awful grateful that you took this time to share your experiences and your knowledge and um i do hope that people reach out and i'll certainly be in touch but i I appreciate that you go off and have a wonderful time with your wife thank her so much from me because well she's fundamental and you being the wonderful person you are and we appreciate that very much so tell her we said hi and thank you so much and thank you just thank you so much for everything Thank you, Cindy. I really appreciate the opportunity. And hopefully you'll be recording so I can share this information with others as well. Oh, without a doubt, absolutely. Uh, two, uh, about two hours or so after this show is done, it'll be archived and, and all like the jazz and stuff. But like I said, I'll reach out to you soon, and then we'll go through all that. I'll send you off all this information, and we'll go from there. But thank you. Excellent. You can go thank on. you, and I have hope, a wonderful I hope, evening, dear. I hope somebody tonight's thinking about this. And um, I, look, I want to drink out of a fire hose. They, to get 20 phone calls tomorrow would be awesome, the next day or the weekend. Yay. And, you know, look, I keep I my phone so. in a separate room, so don't worry about waking me up. If you're thinking about something at 3 o'clock in the morning, you go, I don't want to bother him. Think of it as an, as a, as an investment in our relationship. Don't worry about bothering me because the worst that happens <laughs> is I don't answer to get back to you, and the best that happens is I answer and we, and we get on it right away. So call me, text awesome. me, email me. I will remind my audience of that, my dear. You go off. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Have a good one. dear. You too. Folks, that was absolutely amazing. I want to reiterate, um, in case any of you have a family that's in crisis or a family member, Scott, of course, just to reiterate his cell phone number at any given point in time, and he does mean any given point in time, 1-619-993-2738 is his cell phone number. He can be reached at Confidential Recovery, which is, of course, located in San Diego, California. He has also got the Facebook page not only for Confidential Recovery, but Your Crisis Coach. Also, his Facebook personal page, which is Scott H. Silverman. He is also on YouTube. The book can be uh, purchased on Amazon.com. And again, just to remind everyone, it's Tell Me No, I Dare You, A Guide to Living a Heroic Life. The website is YourCrisisCoach.com. He has a LinkedIn profile, and his Twitter profile is at, and that's Scott H. And Silverman is spelled S-I-L-V-E-R-M-A-N. Do not forget, folks, to tune in, and that is Friday, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. Award-winning actress, and I'm so excited to say it because she just won the award. Riatha, and that's R-E-A-T-H-Y Gray, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time on Friday morning. Please be sure to tune in. I want to say thank you so much to everyone for listening to my very late night, very, very late night show. I'm going to very quickly run off to try to go see the new Brad Pitt Alive movie because I'm so excited, and it's the only time I have not to write. So I'm very excited that I have a date going off to a movie. So I'll sign off. Thank you so much to everybody. Have a wonderful evening, and we'll see you on Friday.